Good morning. Please join me in prayer. Lord God, let the words of your servant's mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our Redeemer, through Christ, amen. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 through 6. After Jesus had finished teaching his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the one who does not fall away on account of me. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Alice. So we've mentioned already today marks the fourth Sunday of Advent. Uh, Advent, of course, is the season that leads up to Christmas. It's not Christmas, but it prepares us for Christmas. The reason Advent is important is that when you wait for something, when you prepare for something, when you anticipate something, you experience more joy when that thing comes. So imagine a vacation. Uh, Imagine that you're one of those lucky few who wins a raffle and you win a vacation in a raffle. That sounds great, right? And and imagine it's, I don't know, a trip to a, a European vacation. And certainly when you go on that vacation, you would enjoy it. But you would enjoy it differently than you would enjoy a vacation that you paid for and you planned and you anticipated and you expected. Because when you plan a vacation, if you were to plan a European vacation, what are you going to do? You're going to pull out, you're going to find, not brochures, but like travel guides. You're going to pull out the Rick Steves Europe travel guide and you're going to, and you're going to look at the pictures and you're going to look at, then you're going to go to TripAdvisor and you're going to see what restaurants do people recommend when you're going to Brussels or wherever it is that you're going. And then you're going to get there and you'll spend six months preparing and planning and setting your itinerary and booking you know, different things. And then you'll finally get there. And actually the sites will be even more beautiful. The, the, the cathedral that you go to visit will be more stunning than it is in that Rick Steves travel guide. And the food will be more delicious even than the person said it was on TripAdvisor. And you see like the more you plan and anticipate and prepare for something, in fact, the greater the payoff is. And even, even as you're preparing, there's a certain joy. So even, even in the depths of November when it's cold and it's dark and it feels like winter is never going to end, if you know that trip is coming up in July, you can, really, you, you can de- derive some joy just from anticipating it. Advent is about anticipating, for us, the second coming of Christ. And it's a season when we lean into what seem like the contradictions of our faith. On the one hand... We recognize and we celebrate that Jesus promised to come, and he came. He was born. God became flesh, was born and lived and died and rose again from the dead and ascended into heaven. And he's established and is establishing his kingdom on earth. That's the one hand. Now, on the other hand, 
Jesus' kingdom of light often seems far off. And we think, okay, well, he was born, and the, we talk about light and joy, but, but there's a lot of brokenness and there's a lot of darkness still in the world. What do we do with that? If Jesus the Christ has come to make all things new, then why hasn't he finished his work yet? Why is there still darkness in the world? And if Jesus' work isn't finished, then how do we respond in this awkward middle ground? Fleming Rutledge, I told you a while ago, a couple weeks ago, that I'm leaning on her a lot for this series. She writes that Advent is not a season of darkness. It's a season of light in darkness. That's such a helpful distinction, and it's important that we recognize and we're honest about the darkness. We don't try to hide from it. We don't bury our heads in the sand. And we insist that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. It didn't occur to me, but it, until just now, as we were singing it, when we sang, O little town of Bethlehem, is this line, yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. Advent, in some ways, is a recognition that there is both still dark in the world and yet Jesus, the light of the world, has come and is coming to shine light in all the darkness. And this year, we're considering, by considering Advent, we're considering John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin. Um, I heard, I, I actually listened to a great sermon on John the Baptist from somebody I would have never listened to, and I'll send it, if you get our emails, you'll get it later this week, uh, Reverend Dorsey McConnell. He's an Episcopalian, a retired Episcopalian bishop. Here's what he writes about John the Baptist. This was vivid. Uh, and he was preaching, this is, by the way, a sermon at um, a church, an Episcopal church on Fifth Avenue in New York City. So he writes, a lot of artwork, 30 blocks north of us, he must be talking about the Met, portrays John the Baptist as a rugged, handsome, and strangely clean man, kind of like a Tom Cruise maverick dressed in camel skin. That's a good image for you, by the way. He continues, and he says, think of him instead as an awkward young 20-something. He must have been a very different kid, a child haunted by God. I don't think he had a lot of friends. The gospel suggests that John had gone into the wilderness long before he appeared, that he might have been more at home in the wild places for some time than in the crowd of human society with all its importance and noise. And apparently he became very suited to this outdoor life, knowing how to keep warm and knowing what to eat and where to find it. And then he finishes and he says, locusts, by the way, can be very tasty, especially pan-roasted with a little salt. You see, Jesus, John's cousin, had come to proclaim a very different message than was popular in first century Rome. And as it turns out, that same message is just as unpopular in 21st century America as it was in first century Rome. The message that both Jesus and John are proclaiming is simple. The kingdom of God has come, which we talked about last week. This morning, we're thinking not only about the nature of the kingdom of God, but we're thinking more about its implications for our lives and specifically why we find the kingdom of God unsettling. Why do we get nervous about the kingdom of God as Jesus and John tell us about it? We find comfort, at least I find comfort, in this. It seems that even John the Baptist himself, great prophet, Jesus' own cousin, 
begins to doubt and have questions about Jesus and about the kingdom of God. His whole purpose in life is to prepare people for God's kingdom. And yet, as the kingdom begins to becomes more clear, John begins to second-guess himself. And so this morning, we're going to think a little bit about that through three lenses. We're going to consider the source of God's kingdom, the surprise of God's kingdom, and the scandal of God's kingdom. And yes, my preaching professors would be thrilled that those all start with S. The source of God's kingdom, the surprise of God's kingdom, and the scandal of God's kingdom. And as we think about these, just know these are, these are not so much building blocks. It's not like you build one and then you build one on the other, and there's, it's not like there's a very logical progression. There's a lot of overlap here. This is more almost like three friends in conversation with each other, encouraging and expanding on and enjoying one another. But first, let's consider John's doubt when it comes to the source of God's kingdom. Now, this, I've never really noticed this until this year, that John has been telling people the kingdom of God has come. His, his whole mission is to tell people about the kingdom. He doesn't actually know a lot about the kingdom. He's telling people about something he's somewhat ignorant about. Now, in our text today, John is in prison. That's a whole different account we're not going to get into. And we read in verse 2 that when John was in prison and heard what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who was himself to come? Or should we look for someone else? Even John is unsure of Jesus here. You'd, You'd think John would know. He's a prophet. He's supposed to know. He's Jesus' cousin. Like, doesn't he know who Jesus is? They grew up together. He got annoyed with his 13-year-old teenage boy cousin Jesus playing pickup soccer who constantly had this little Messiah complex going on. You'd think John would know about Jesus. I mean, even earlier, John did know about Jesus. He said very publicly to Jesus and about Jesus, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But John's been in prison And I don't know from experience, but I imagine that when you're in prison, you just have some time to think about things. And you have a lot of time for the seeds of doubt to begin to sprout and to grow and to bud and to blossom. And maybe certain doubts began to grow in John's heart. And he began to wonder, this isn't how I saw the kingdom of God coming. I thought God was going to come in his kingdom and make everything right, and here I am stuck in prison, wasting away. What gives? Is this guy really the one? What do you do in the moments when you're unsure of Jesus? You have those too, right? It's not just me. When you're unsure of Jesus, what do you do? Notice what John does. He doesn't try to hide his doubt and his questions. He doesn't try to cover it over or pretend like it's not there. He's very upfront. He's so upfront that he takes his doubt directly to Jesus. I mean, he can't go on himself, but he sends messengers. You get the idea. Do you believe that Jesus' shoulders are broad enough that he won't wither when you come to him and say, you know, Jesus, I'm not so sure of you right now. Let me suggest to you that if he really is God, he can take it. 
And in fact, if you're afraid to take your doubts to God because you think God will get offended or upset or turn you into a little pile of ashes because God is somehow insecure, then you probably should doubt that God. That's no God. If he can't take our doubt, then by definition, he can't be God. Only the true God has broad enough shoulders to bear that. John seems to have some understanding of that as he asks Jesus, are you, are you really who you say you are? Because things aren't going that well right now. And Jesus, in his typical Jesus way, uh, doesn't answer the question. You notice this? They ask, are you the one who is to come? Are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah, the promised one? And Jesus never says yes or no. Uh, instead, he says, you've seen the evidence. Decide for yourself. You've seen the evidence. Decide for yourself. Now, the evidence is pretty surprising, as it turns out. John and his disciples, and pretty much every Jew, and let's face it, you and I today, in a lot of ways, uh, all think that God's kingdom is going to come somehow through a, a display of force, a show of force, a show of power. We know that most first century Jews thought that God's kingdom was going to come either through politics, through political victory, or through military victory. And this isn't in our reading today, but just a couple of verses after what Alice read in Matthew 11, verse 12, Jesus explains and shows us that people had been trying to take back God's kingdom by force. And we actually know that's true. The historians Josephus and Philo um, have verified this third-party verification. There were every couple decades around the first century under Roman occupation, there was some sort of a violent uprising of Jews trying to take back God's kingdom. Jesus tells us here that his kingdom is not anything like that. It's surprisingly different. Namely, in that it's not taken, it's received. I don't know if you notice, if you're a grammar person, look at verse 5 and notice that, that almost everything Jesus says is in the passive voice, not the active voice. If that doesn't mean anything to you, just know it's received, not taken. Let me read verse 5 for you. This is what Jesus said. He says, basically, you look at the evidence and decide for yourself. The blind receive sight. What does a blind person have to do to receive sight? Nothing. They just get it. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cured. They don't cure themselves. It's coming from outside. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. Certainly the dead can't raise themselves. And the good news is preached to the poor. Let's just point out one other obvious fact. All those groups of people that Jesus brings up here, the blind, the lame, the sick, the deaf, the dead, the poor, are the least likely group in the world, groups in the world, to take anything by force. They can't. You can't. I don't mean to disrespect anybody, but somebody who's blind or somebody who's deaf or somebody who is, is sick beyond belief can't start an uprising. The only way that you can get into a kingdom, as it were, is to be let in. They couldn't take the kingdom if they tried. They can only receive it. Jesus says, this kingdom is surprising and that you don't have to bring it. I have already brought it. 
which tells us that the coming of the kingdom of God, and this is good news, does not depend on you or on me. But God invites us to participate with him as he brings his kingdom. There are a couple very standard, basically cliche sermons that certain pastors, some pastors love to preach. I'm probably guilty of a little bit of this myself. There's there's two that I have in mind, and they're related. The first goes like this. God needs your help. Imagine God as Uncle Sam saying, I need you. God needs your help to bring his kingdom to earth. The second is very similar. It goes something like, you can change the world for Jesus. That's basically the, 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 the Tony Robbins inspirational but Jesusified message. Now, both of those messages are unhelpful, and at least one of them is untrue, maybe both. First, let's just think about the, the first. Um, God needs you. It's just not true. Again, if God needs you to bring his kingdom on earth, then he's not God. By definition, he can't be. And it's not only untrue, it's unhelpful, because think about it for just a minute with me. The more God needs you, the more pressure is on your shoulders. And now you start worrying. Like, what if I let God down? What if I don't live up to what God is demanding of me? What if I don't live up to God's plans for me? What if I get it wrong? What if I go the wrong direction? And all of a sudden, you see what's happened? Your faith has become an exercise of fear and anxiety rather than one of freedom and joy. If God needs you, then God's not really God. And you should doubt that God. The second message is, I don't know if it's as untrue, but it's at least unhelpful. You can be great for Jesus. You can change the world for Jesus. To start with, that message makes things really more about you than about Jesus. It's all about what you can do. You become the center of attention. The spotlight is redirected to you. But remember about John's message, he must increase, I must decrease. You know, most of us can get on board with the first part of that. He must increase. Yeah, sure. Yeah. But John takes things at least a step further and says, I must decrease. And how many of us are willing to decrease? And yet, the kingdom of God is not about us becoming great. It's very counterintuitively about becoming like Christ, who himself became least. You see, Advent living, living as an Advent people, is about learning what it means really to deny ourselves and to take up our cross. And as one other preacher put it, you don't take up your cross if you're not about to be crucified on that cross. It's about learning to follow Jesus who denied himself and took up his cross. Here's how Fleming Rutledge again puts it. I told you I'm leaning a lot on her for this series. She writes this, the church, the church is not called to be a change agent. And she helpfully says, she kind of adds this little aside, she says, God is the agent of change. The calling of the church, she writes, is to place itself where God is already at work. The church lives, therefore, without fear, without fear, in faith that the cosmic change regime has already been accomplished. Now, that's a message that is surprising, is it not? Not? 
And it's not only surprising, it's so surprising that it becomes scandalous, which is what Jesus talks about when there's this, he has this seemingly random little aside right at the end there, verse 6. Jesus says, you know, remember the, um, the poor have the, the gospel preached to them and the blind receive sight and the lame can walk and, and blessed is the one who does not fall away on account of me. What does that mean? What does that mean? The verb to fall away in Greek, it's, it's literally scandalize. If you were to translate it very literally, it would just, Jesus basically says, blessed is the one who is not scandalized because of me. Now remember, right before this, Jesus has asked John's disciples to consider the evidence. You might wonder, when you consider the evidence, okay, the blind have sight, the lame walk, the lepers are healed, the deaf can hear. Like, who would actually be, who would actually be scandalized by that? That seems like pretty good news. That seems like a pretty good world. Why, why does Jesus think that people would be scandalized or would fall away because of that? When we realize that Jesus' invitation to follow him is an invitation to become like the least of these, it starts to make more sense. When we realize that in the kingdom of God, those who are blind somehow become more than those who can see, that the least of these are elevated among, over the greatest of these, it starts to make more sense. And when we realize that Jesus' invitation to follow him is ultimately an invitation to crucifixion, at least if we're going to follow Jesus all, the, Jesus all the way, then we start to understand why we might be tempted to fall away. It's pretty easy to get on board with the beginning of Jesus' message. And the middle part is pretty good, too. He's a great teacher. He performs miracles. He preaches to love, love your enemies. At least in theory, we can get on board with that. But when the rubber meets the road and it comes time to, for that last 20%, we think that's a little too much. I was with you the first 80% of the way, God. But the last 20% of following you gets pretty difficult. And I'm not all that interested in denying myself and taking up my cross. We become tempted to look elsewhere, some, to, to something or someone who's a little more comfortable, a little more palatable, a little less extreme, a little less radical. We become tempted to look elsewhere. And here's the thing, you can look elsewhere. And Jesus won't stop you. There are many other times in the Gospels when people leave Jesus they decide that the cost of following him is, is a greater cost than they want to pay. And do you know what Jesus does every single time? He lets them go. He doesn't force anybody to follow him. To force is not to love. To love is to give, among other things, to give somebody freedom. And in his love, Jesus gives us the freedom to say, I will follow you or I will fall, fall away from you. But Jesus does not chase after them. Blessed is the one who does not fall away on account of me. 
If that sounds familiar, by the way, you're on the right track. You're noticing something that is, in fact, there. It mirrors another set of blessed statements that Jesus makes earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 5. Let me read those, if I can. And as I read those, consider the kingdom that Jesus invites us into and consider how that is surprising and maybe even scandalous when we compare it to the kingdom that we're used to. In other words, listen to this with Advent ears, recognizing the darkness in the world and yet listening for the light and the hope that is in the midst of the darkness. This is Matthew 5, verses 3 through 12. Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Indeed, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil about you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Blessed are the poor in spirit? That doesn't feel like a blessing. Doesn't feel like a blessing to mourn. Doesn't feel like a blessing to be persecuted because of Jesus. A lot of times it doesn't feel blessed to have to be merciful because it means you've been wronged in the first place. And yet in Advent, we look for and lean into the surprising and scandalous kingdom of God. You see, God's kingdom, he tells us, is one in which the greatest become least and the least become greatest. Jesus says the kingdom of God is a kingdom where the person who sits at the foot of the table is asked to sit at the head of the table. And it's a kingdom where the person who puts themselves at the head of the table is relegated to the foot of the table. The kingdom of God is a kingdom where the poor are exalted even above the rich. It's a kingdom where trying to preserve our life leads only to death and in which following Jesus into his death leads us into eternal life. You see? In Advent, we look for and we prepare for the kingdom of God, which is not a kingdom in which we look to become great. It's a kingdom in which we look in some sense, to become less. Remember, he must increase, I must decrease. We follow Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who himself became least. I mean, maybe the most extraordinary thing about God is that he, being God, put skin on and became human. 
Another author, Eric Raymond, uh, summarizes Thomas Watson and says this. He says, it's a more extraordinary demonstration of humility. It's a more extraordinary demonstration of humility for Christ to become man than it is for him to die. It's natural for a man to die. It is unheard of for God to become a man. And then he continues, and he says, Far from being ashamed of his people, the fact that he became a man showcases God's love for us. Love comes by making ourselves less, not by making ourselves greater. And God, in his love, became fully human so that we might recover our full humanity. Or to put it differently, we cannot become fully human apart from the God who became fully human. It's not possible. And it is he who draws us into our fuller humanity and invites us to participate in that perfectly human and divine project of restoring creation to its true glory. Or as we love to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Pray with me. Oh Lord, teach us what it means that in your kingdom, the least become great and the great become the least. Teach us what it means that when we preserve our lives, we lose them, and when we lose our lives, we find them in you. In other words, teach us what it means to be more and more like you, our Jesus and our God. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.